You're listening to OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association and a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. OEA Grow is by members for members. In season six, educators discuss student-centered curriculum with Janoj Cotter. My name is Janoj Cotter, and I'm a social studies specialist over here in Eugene 4J. Super excited to have you on the OEA Grow podcast. This uh, season on the OEA Grow podcast, we're focusing on student-centered curriculum and student-centered learning experiences. And so I'm happy to have you on the show and get to talk about that from your perspective. Um, To get started, could you tell listeners a little bit about yourself and some of the different roles you've served Oregon students in? Yeah, my name is Brad Parker. Um, I've lived in Oregon now for about eight eight years. Um, I came out here after being a Chicago public school middle teacher for a good 10 years of my young life. I started teaching right when I got out of school and I was a middle school social studies and language arts teacher an IB coordinator for a while. Um, I came over to Oregon and was an assistant principal in Portland Public for three years in Northeast Portland. Uh, Grew a ton in that position, really, really found myself outside of the classroom, got involved in more kind of school change things, but also curricular change. I became very, very interested in that work, really kind of empowered and inspired. And that led me to pursue a doctorate at Portland State in educational leadership with a specialization in curriculum and instruction, which I'm happy to say I have recently completed. Um, And for the last four years, I've been working in Beaverton in the Office of Teaching and Learning. And similar to you, I'm a social studies specialist. Uh, The majority of the work I've done has been to help facilitate a curriculum adoption for K-12 social science, um, which was something that hadn't been done in a while and that we had very ambitious aims for. A lot of people listening will probably know a bit about the 2021 Integrated Ethnic Studies Standards. So that's really been our kind of guiding focus. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, I'm curious, did you go to Chicago Public Schools for your K-12 experience? I I was born in Chicago and we lived on the north side of the city uh, for my little, very baby ages. And then we moved to a place called Oak Park, which is the first suburb west Um, of Chicago. So the west edge of Chicago was about a block and a half from where I grew up in Oak Park. Um, But I did attend schools in Oak Park. Cool. When you were a student, can you think of any experiences that kind of translate to the sense of seeing yourself in the curriculum? Or is looking back at schooling at that time, was that a concept at all outside of like you kind of like some classes or didn't like some classes? Were there experiences you had where you actually felt like I'm actually connected to this or we're looking back on it, you're able to see like you were so engaged that there must have been something you were really connecting with? Let me ask you, when you say curriculum, how do, how do you define that? Because I feel like that's something that as educators, we it can mean everything and therefore nothing at all, right? It could be materials, it could be approaches, it could be learning targets. Um, I'm just curious what what comes to mind when you say curriculum? How do you use that? I think think it can be the the totality of intended or unintended 
experiences students have in the classroom or mm-hmm. on school grounds. There's, of course, like the hidden curriculum of what are the rules of the school and how are students disciplined or how are different students privileged and responded to in different circumstances. I think that that is super valid to talk about in this particular framing for this question. Were there topics, were there classes, were there activities where you found yourself really connecting or looking back, you can see like, oh yeah, there was something in me kind of getting lit up by that. I, I appreciate that framing, the more kind of holistic. And I, I too remember the notion of, of hidden curriculum and not only as that being something that some students had the capacity to navigate more successfully than others or had access to supports to navigate that in more ways. But then there's also, I think what I hear you saying in that totality piece in regards to your experiences, potentially what you're learning, who you're learning from, and maybe those more easily observable things. Um, when I think of this question about how I'm reflected, I initially, uh, it, I think of the work of, of Rudy Sims Bishop, right? Her concept of mirrors and windows, which I think is a really brilliant metaphor, um, which she conceptualized for children's literature, but I think it could be connected to this question in an interesting way. Um, I saw a lot of mirrors as a kid. Maybe I wasn't as aware of it, because my consciousness was nowhere near uh, where I would have liked it to be, um, especially in elementary school, but as a white, middle-class, European-American, native English-speaking, able-bodied person of a lot of intersectional advantage and privilege, even if I was unaware of that, I saw a lot of myself. Um, I saw a lot of framing that felt natural and normal. Um, I, I, I would say I was lucky enough to grow up in a very racially and ethnically diverse place, especially when you compare that to Oregon. Um, I did have black teachers in elementary school. Um, you know, we, we had a lot of a lot more racial and ethnic diversity that I was surrounded by um, growing up where I did outside of Chicago. But in terms of the curriculum, I definitely saw a lot more reflected in that mirror sense than I did in terms of how Sims Bishop talked about windows and seeing other perspectives and having that be centered. I do have a vivid memory um, of my sixth grade teacher. Her name was Miss Alexander. She was a black woman. And there was a comic book. This must have been in the early 90s. And it was called Brother Man. And it centered a young black boy Um, It kind of had a sci-fi twist to it. And I remember her excitement at talking about Brother Man and how these comics were so needed and so important. And I don't think I fully understood what she was getting at, but I know that because she was a dynamic teacher, she was what you would call a warm demander. Everyone wanted that book. That was normalized in our class. It was sought out. And it's cool to kind of reflect back and think about all of the things that she intentionally did, likely for students just like me to awaken my consciousness a little bit. Um, And the fact that I even remember that probably a whole lot more than what you may consider curriculum, you know, what books did we read or what types of assessments did we do? Um, None of that stuff stuck. But but I will say some of those memories of, of working and learning with and from her and even 
that memory of Brother Man and how excited she was to have that in the class and how everyone was clamoring to get their hands on it is a pretty neat memory. You, your story makes me think a little bit of um, what I think is the Latin phrase in loco parentis, the idea that the school is acting as parent while it has students in it. And that, there's problematic dimensions to that, but there's also like, we don't often think about what's the curriculum that we learn from our parents or our families. Our home settings teach us quite a bit. And so that aspects of that story were just kind of these, these human moments that you were having that you might not have had at home. People at home were not necessarily bringing Brother Man forward for you to read. And so kind of this wider um, perspective that we get at school through just these different ways of seeing how people are just being people and sharing what excites them. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, looking back on that without necessarily seeing a lot of representation consistently throughout your K-12 experience that really helped you see outside, see, see that your perspective was getting privileged at times or seeing that identity similar to yours might have been getting privileged at times. Um, reflecting on that, are there examples of what you have tried to carry forward in your practice with students or of experiences you had of things that you're really uh, trying not to replicate or are trying to really be conscious of in your practice that were prevalent in yours, in your experiences. Yeah. And, and connected to, to really this bigger notion of, of student centered learning um, to me, that really can come down to the idea of inspiring inquiry and curiosity and agency in students. And what I mean by that is, you know, when we have a curriculum hidden or overt that provides avenues for students to connect what they're learning, what they're reading, who they are hearing from to political, social, environmental realities, and or even concerns that may affect them in their lives or, or the place and context that they're living. Um, that to me, I think is, is the real light bulb of seeing school as an important place where you are part of learning about the real world, but also an active agent in being curious about it, you know, privileging questions just as much as wrote answers or memorized answers. I think that's a huge area of growth for me as a classroom educator is thinking about my younger self and how I think I was groomed to think that the acquisition of knowledge was the priority in a social science class as opposed to the cultivation of dispositions of, of course, knowledge development, but also critical thinking, um, curiosity, research skills, communication skills, empathy, humility, all these things as well. Um, and I think when you have those and when you especially have them in a way that they are seen as bigger, deeper, more nuanced and complex, even you could say systemic issues as opposed to isolated or personal issues. And I think of things like racism and how you could, the idea of the perpetrator's perspective, it's very individual based. It's very um, 
person-based as opposed to a systemic approach where you invite kids to realize the complexity and nuance in the society that surrounds them. And I've found that even our youngest of learners, when provoked, when their curiosity is provoked, when their conscience is provoked, when their head and heart are provoked with realities, with realities that are nuanced and through multiple perspectives, um, that's when students start to see school, I think, as having a whole new meaning beyond traditional subjects, beyond what I think a lot of well-intended but younger teachers think of, including myself, when we say things like the curriculum. Mm. Well, that does a good job of answering not only that question, but another one. We might skip number five here, <laughs> but we're only at number three. I'm curious, when you think of student-centered curriculum or student-centered learning experiences, you've touched on aspects of it, but I'm curious in terms of topics, what you see yourself potentially gravitating toward uh, in, your own, in your own practice or if you were to be back in the classroom. For me, place-based, ethnic studies, climate change studies are the sort of things that come to mind. For you, topic in terms of topics or in terms of skills, where do you see yourself? When it comes to topics, um, I think I would absolutely agree. Um, social, political, environmental realities, inequities, uh, histories, both contemporary and past, are gonna, gonna of course move to the forefront. I think students growing up today um, even in the last four years have seen, have survived pandemics, a racial social justice movement, arguably that is larger than any that has happened ever before in the movement for Black Lives and Justice. They've seen the Capitol stormed. Um, they've seen headlines, heard headlines, about climate crisis that they may even be numb to realize what that, what that truly means, um, both for their futures and for the future generations. And um, I would like to think that we as teachers can create space and avenues to know how these social, political, environmental realities are truly impacting our kids. And I think this is something important that I don't think I mentioned earlier when talking about student-centered learning. Um, you know, you could talk about representation and if you see yourself reflected, you could talk about what you're reading and learning and does it connect to your daily life and the real world that you experience. But I also think part of that conversation is about avenues and levers to assess do students feel like they are active agents in determining what we value and what they learn about in education. And what I mean by that, there's a really neat document that came out of the Equity Literacy Institute that Paul Gorski and a handful of others have worked on. And one of them that really has resonated with me has to do with seeking anonymous feedback from your students. And it basically says, I will elicit anonymous feedback from students. And when I do, I will model a willingness to be changed by their presence to the same extent that they are changed by mine. 
And I think that idea is often so overlooked. I can see younger me as a teacher talking about how student-centered my class is because we were talking about this issue and they were so engaged and they had so many questions and so many hands up and they seemed to be so connected. But if I could be honest in thinking, did I elicit consistent anonymous feedback? Did I acknowledge it? Did I validate it? Did I communicate to them that I heard them and was I changed by it in being the facilitator of that shared community learning space? And if so, how? Did it change what I taught? Did it change who I taught? Um, did it change the structure of activities that favored extroverted learners as opposed to introverted learners? Um, did it challenge the amount of airtime that I took up? I, I started a uh, couple years into teaching because of a great mentor. Every time we passed out progress reports and report cards, that was, that was a time when teachers had the power to assess students, to tell them how they're doing, behaviorally, academically, all those things. So I started to take that as an opportunity anytime I gave grades or progress checks, um, students would do the same for me. And they could be anonymous. Uh, they could write their names on them. It was hit or miss. Uh, not only were some hilarious, uh, some were humbling. Some were as blatant as, Mr. Parker, we know you love history, but you need to chill. Um, you talk too much. You talk too fast. And those were things that I literally can, re I can remember the name of the students that wrote those things. Um, but I can also remember anonymous ones where students would say that they didn't feel, I don't think they would have used the term reflected in the curriculum, but I think they would have challenged a history, a United States history oriented class you know, the typical frame that you'll see like 1492 to the Civil War, something like that. A lot happened. A lot happened for a lot of different people. Um, what was said in foundational documents that we studied as the law and as the truth and as the foundation of our country was not the reality that a lot of students experience, even in their present day lives. And I go back to that notion of if we want to truly be student-centered, we need. I agree with Paul Gorski in this idea that we need to find ways to elicit anonymous feedback, to know where they're at, how they're experiencing things, and to show a willingness to be changed by the bravery for students to be honest about not only the teacher, but about what they're learning. And that, to me, um, I think is really the key to that. Because if students wouldn't say something student-centered, how dare we as teachers proclaim that? I appreciate that. Thank you. And I am hoping that you might be um, outside of soliciting that sort of feedback yourself. Um, are there other examples that come to mind in terms of um, a topic that your class took up um, or Anything else that comes to mind for how you, in your own practice, felt like you were making, how you were succeeding or making progress in your ability to provide student-centered experiences? I think um, going back to the idea of inspiring inquiry, but also being 
strategic in how you are helping students gain foundational and conceptual knowledge about social and political realities is important. You know, I don't think starting by just asking, I, I, I don't think just starting with completely open-ended inquiry is necessarily the way that I would approach it now. Um, I think using almost like a case study model to show students how things are connected, but also really, really to value um, the questions that they have and how that can really drive learning and drive lesson planning and drive the scope and even sequence of a unit that you teach. Um, you had asked about classroom, memorable classroom experiences and students. Um, I don't remember what year it was when I was teaching in Chicago Public, but uh, as many people know, but perhaps don't know the complexity and, and nuance of it, gun violence is a very real issue in Chicago, particularly on the South Side. And while I didn't teach on the South Side, I was on the West Side, um, there were issues there as well. And a lot of students were not only concerned about that, but often were confused um, because they had heard the headlines. They had seen terms like Chirac, you know, and the national landscape and, and just not really slowed down to think like, what do people mean by that? How could that be harmful? Um, why is there more gun violence here than there is in some other cities? And our students, I remember that took us into a direction of before just immediately jumping into what can we do about this? What should we do about this? Um, what is being done about this? And we found some really, really amazing local organizations, uh, one called Ceasefire that was volunteer run, that was a community driven philosophy of getting people out into the streets, community organizing. Um, we wrote letters of support to that organization. We wanted them to know that we saw the work we were doing and were inspired by that. Um, kids fundraised for that organization because they truly felt that the work they were doing was important. Uh, we also learned about civic engagement and what that could mean. What does it mean to, what's a local alderman? He came to our class. He talked to us about the work he did. Uh, what does the mayor do? What does the president do? And this was, this must have been sometime in or around 2009 and 10 because Barack Obama had just been elected. And a lot of my students in Chicago were very excited. He's the, the, the first non-white president. He was, had a very strong tie to Chicago. He accepted his nomination at Grant Park. Some of my kids were there. I was there. It, it was a moment for a lot of people in Chicago. Um, and we wrote President Obama letters. And not only did he write back, we were a lucky, lucky envelope that, that found its way to his desk, um, but he wrote a handwritten note card signed by him to our class. And I will never forget, it's indescribable for, for the students to have an experience like that, let alone at a time like that. Um, and I still am in touch with some students from that class, and they will tell me they have the copy of the handwritten note still, and that that's a point of pride and an inspiration for them. And um, yeah, I think that's important. You know, I think it it goes back to that idea: how do we connect, whether it be the curriculum or even student-centered thinking and teaching and learning to a student's head, heart, and conscience, um, because they're connected.
you know, we teach them as intellectuals, but we also teach them as growing imperfect humans that experience a range of emotions and identities, um, but their conscience. I think that's, that's what drives me as a social science teacher. Um, a fancy way of saying that could be civics education, but I think a, a really direct way of saying it is that conscience and that feeling that we have about wanting to be part of something better. I appreciate that. And I appreciate um, how it kind of invites a concept that I, I find helpful um, to think about what are the lifelong experiences or the lifelong memories that I want students to be able to look back on related to this class without necessarily spelling that out in terms of this is exactly what we're going to do, but like, what, what's the opportunity here? What kind of things could, could that be? And, um, certainly letting student voice, student perspective guide that I'm reminded also. And so this will be a fun note to, to potentially end on because you and I both do work at the middle school level. Do you have a pretty strong memory of what you learned in middle school social studies? Do you feel like there's more than like 12 discrete facts or experiences, activities that you could really point back to and say, I remember all these things, like a dozen or more or a dozen or fewer? <laughs> well, let me start off by saying, I hope none of my former middle school teachers are listening. Uh, they are all the way back in the Midwest, so they're probably not. No, I'm kidding. Um, you know, I, I, I would say it was very reflective of the, at the time, naive mindset I had as a young teacher that social studies was ex exactly what it sounded like. It was a study of the past. Um, and I know it may just be semantics, but I think I, in working with teachers and even sometimes students, I think it's interesting to invite them to consider, is there a difference, without getting too intellectual or conceptual, but is there a difference between social studies and social science? Um, and if so, what does that mean? Um, and how can that change the way that we approach things? Or what is, what is the difference perhaps between a historian and a social scientist? Do they do the same work? Could their work have the same impact and in what ways? Um, but no, when I, when I reflect back on my experiences, I would say it was very knowledge acquisition heavy. It was very memorization heavy. Granted, we didn't have chat GPT, right? We, <laughs> I, I think any teacher today realizes that the access to knowledge is at an unprecedentedly high level that only will continue to grow. So what does that mean if I carry a device that can give me historical knowledge that I can literally ask it a question with my voice, not even type it in? Um, what does that mean in terms of my critical thinking or how I then communicate it? Um, what I do with it, how it influences my life personally, civically, all those things. Um, but I, I'm, I'm looking at question number four here. And I want to share something about that. Um, and it talks about when you look back on your career and education so far, how do you think you have grown in your approach? Uh, not only a student-centered learning, 
Um, and if there are any lessons or experiences that come to mind, and I have a recent experience that I want to share. Um, I, in my EDD program at Portland State, um, one of my favorite professors and the chair of my dissertation committee, I was doing an internship with her. We were in a class with master's students in a class called Educating for Equity and Social Justice at Portland State. And somehow it came up, we were talking about programs and what is the master's program and what is the EDD program and what's the difference between an EDD and a PhD. And Dr. Bright was her name and a student raised, she had a PhD and a student raised their hand and kind of jokingly asked it, but said, you know, Dr. Bright, what's it like to have your PhD in education, like to know everything? And it was a funny question, and I will never forget her response. She paused for a minute, she laughed out loud, and she said, if anything, getting my PhD has taught me how much I don't know. And I thought that experience, younger me could have used that so much, just a dose of humility, not only when it came to what we deem as important in curriculum, um, but also how much kids are bringing to the classroom. You know, whether you talk about funds of knowledge or lived experience or curiosity, um, to have the humility to realize that a learning space is so dynamic and that we as educators, our job is not just to transmit information. It's not just to follow a syllabus. It's not, I think you had mentioned earlier, like, to map out what we're going to do. I think it's good, of course, to have a map, but I think that humility, that flexibility, that seeking of input from students is, is at the core of all of this. Um, that if we don't have a, an impactful, meaningful way to truly ask, and more importantly, to listen and act on what is important to kids in their lives, um, talents they have, whether it be the hidden curriculum or overt curriculum. I think that notion of humility and kind of the, the wisdom of being humble, the wisdom of humility is something that I have learned and reflected on that I think has changed me the most. I appreciate that. I um, will not try to track down your Chicago area teachers and share with them that you aren't sure outside of a handful of facts. The reason I brought that up, a lot of middle school teachers take the profession very seriously and can also sometimes forget how little of what they teach is actually going to be retained by students. And it's kind of a, a, a good self-caution to consider what are the memorable experiences or potentially lifelong memories I'm really trying to create and focus on how do I scaffold around those and try to have those as interconnected with as many things as possible. So hopefully it's not just those things that they remember, but it's a new way of thinking. And they might not even remember that it was in my class that they picked up this new way of thinking. And I think uh, many of your answers led me to believe that whether on purpose or not, you have very similar goals in your practice. I, yeah, no, I, I, I hear that and I agree. And I have to share a, a fast anti-humility story um, because I think being honest and even being able to laugh at our younger selves is, is an important part of growing. 
Um, I and I, I say anti-humility because it, it there could not be a worse example of it than what I'm going to give you of young Mr. Parker. I think this was like my second year, and it was still in my my phase of being more of what I would consider a teacher-centered, history-based classroom. And I had a student. Her name was Sasha. I can see her now. And she was a great student. She was very smart. She was very active. She enjoyed class. She had lots of good questions. And she was funny. And she one day raised her hand. I'm assuming it was after I had been talking too much, like I had mentioned that some students had shared in anonymous feedback. And she said, Mr. Parker, has a student ever asked you a question that you didn't know the answer to? And first off, the fact that she asked that <laughs> clearly showed that I was doing some wrong things, that I was projecting that. And I think I took it in a humorous angle and I, I laughed and I said, well, of course not. I mean, I... I, I oh, I, I, I'm always ready for you guys and just brushed it off. And that's, that's a cringeworthy memory for me. Um, it's the opposite of what I've, I've grown to realize um, that as teachers, we are not the gatekeepers to knowledge. We are not the sole determinants of success, of what's important. Um, and it just goes back to that humility. The, the, and I, I agree with that. The more I have learned, the more I've read, the more I've studied, the more I've listened, the more I've created space um, for different perspectives and, and gotten out of the way of what students bring to the table and where they want to drive things, um, the better I've become. And I, I think that's going to just be a, be a constant moving forward. Well, I think that that is a fun note to end on this pondering of not only what curriculum are we trying to convey, but what curriculum are we there to receive if we're open to receiving it? Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a very apt way of putting it. Dr. Parker, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. For more OEA professional learning opportunity, visit our webpage at grow.oregoned.org.